verses 41 through 47. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So, how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to His disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the glorious mercy and grace of Your holy written Word. The Bible that You have caused us to love. And now this morning, would You cause me to faithfully unpack this passage. Would You cause us to see what You, Jesus, were up to that day, would You cause us to see the Gospel that is so clear here? And would You cause our hearts to love it and never be like the scribes, but to be utterly humbled by Your mercy in order to enter Your eternal joy to the glory of Your name. Amen. Recently, I was at at a lunch with a with a few people, and I met a young man in his twenties who is a fairly new religious person. And I asked him basically, "What's what's happened in your life?" And so I listened, and I heard him talk about his recent experiences and his experience on a missions trip and to South America, and What was coming through more and more was he was really excited about words he got through other people. It became more and more uncomfortable as I sat there to, maybe I won't ask him that question, I'll make him feel uncomfortable. If I would have asked him, who is Jesus to you? Or or what is it about the Gospel of Jesus Christ that makes you, personally here, a Christian, I felt like it might have been offensive to him if I would have gone on to ask him those questions. So I didn't. I just listened. And the more I listened about his religious life and experience, there was nothing there that pointed to something outside of Him that existed before He ever came into being. Called a front page news article. We call it the good news of Jesus Christ and who He is and what He has done. Was He truly 
religious, in the name of Christianity, definitely, absolutely, was He a new creature in Christ? Was He saved by Jesus? I have no idea. Maybe. I just, but I had nothing that day to go on. But this I do know. False religion is everywhere. And I don't mean Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and the, the world religions. I mean in the guise of Christianity, it's everywhere. Just in our own evangelical world for the last 50 years, pop psychology is really the message. Just Christianize. Or the self-esteem movement, jesus up. Or health and wealth, worship presented as Christianity. And it shouldn't shock us because Jesus throughout His ministry and in our text this morning warns there are people who are very religious, who have a strong confidence about their relationship with God, and yet Jesus says, beware of them. These are the types of religious people who do not know the answer to Jesus' question about Psalm 110. David thus calls Him Lord. So how is it that He is David's descendant or son? Who is Jesus is the most crucial question in the world. Us, religious types, sharing our experience in religion or in church or on a missions trip or the new energy and life we feel by hanging around with church people, none of that is the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Or what makes you, personally, a Christian? But that question, the question Jesus poses about the Messiah, how could this be? There is an answer. The answer to that is the question that confronts every human so if you're there, Luke 20, we turn to our passage. Where we left off, we begin at verse 21. But remember the flow of the story of what's happening. Jesus has been returning the serve of His critics who have been firing trick questions at Him. Who gave you the authority to come into the temple and disrupt it like this, Jesus? Should we pay tribute to Caesar or not, Jesus? She had seven husbands. So Jesus, in the stupid theology of the resurrection, who's going to be her husband then? And each time Jesus skillfully responded and left them speechless. 
Look at the last verse where we left off. Verse 40. For they no longer dared to ask Him any question. Okay, now it's Jesus' turn. He's got the serve. And He poses the question. And His goal in this question is to publicly show how ignorant the professional clergy are about the Bible and about Scripture. They correctly thought that the promised anointed one, David's descendant, to reign on David's throne, that they were right in thinking he will be David's descendant. But they wrongly thought that he would be a mere human being. A political Savior. And so with His question, Jesus points out that not only will the Messiah, take that over into the Greek, the Christ, not only will He be descended of David, but He will be God in the flesh. And an understanding of Jesus that falls short of that is a false religion. And false spirituality is embodied in the scribes he's addressing. They are the professional PhD scholars of the day. Many of them Pharisees in their religious leanings. It's embodied and who they are. And so Jesus warns particularly His followers, don't be deceived or intimidated by those kinds of religious people. Because it is a false spirituality. True Christianity at its essence is not a system of thought or morals. Even though true Christianity has a system of thought in morals. Nor is it an organization of gathering people into churches. Though every genuine Christian should become a member of a local church. By local church covenant. Neither is the essence of Christianity a sort of spiritual experience. Though true Christianity involves a true, real experience. The essence of true Christianity is having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Here's how Jesus summarizes it in His prayer in John 17.3. This is eternal life. Here it comes. To know you. Didn't mean just know about Him. But to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. At its core, genuine, authentic 
Christianity is knowing the historical Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord in your daily life. And so, here's most of the sermon. There's two aspects to that of genuine Christianity. It is having a right understanding of who Jesus really is. Secondly, it is having a right response to that, to whom He really is. We're going to spend bulk of our time on that first one. To know, I am a Christian. Yeah, I have experiences, but here's where it's based. It's based in this historical person, Jesus from Nazareth. And this is what I know about Him. You better be right on that at the core. The question here in our text that Jesus Himself poses has an answer. And that answer is essential knowledge to being a Christian. Verse 41, But Jesus said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's Son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David therefore calls Him Lord. So, how is He His Son? Jesus was not playing theological games. Jesus was doing a number of things. And one of the things He was doing was evangelizing. In quoting Psalm 110, verse 1 that He does here, Jesus is saying, this is essential. He's saying, you need to recognize that the Messiah is not only David's descendant, but He is also David's Lord. He is the Lord of the universe who will crush all His enemies under His And the Holy Spirit of God who inspired the New Testament writers seems to have considered Psalm 110 to be really important and significant. Since this Psalm 110 is the most quoted or alluded to Psalm, or excuse me, of any Old Testament text, in the New Testament writings. Now, when Jesus asked this question, so how is He David's Son? He is not denying that the Messiah would be David's Son, His descendant. The Scriptures are clear on that when we start with God's promise to King David and then throughout the Old Testament. Just give you a taste. Like Isaiah, a few hundred years later, prophesies in Isaiah 9-7 of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over 
His kingdom. Luke, in this narrative, back in chapter 1, has already made it very clear in verse 27, where the angel comes to a virgin who is betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And then why does he put this in there? Because it's significant. His name was Joseph of the house of David. And then later in chapter 1, the angel says about Jesus in Mary's womb, the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father, David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. We saw a few weeks back in chapter 18 of Luke, the blind man yelling out, not Jesus, Son of David! And Jesus received that as a title. No problem with it. Son of David! Promised One! Have mercy on Me! Alright. So Jesus isn't denying that. He's causing these people think about the sentences in Psalm 110. So He poses the question which essentially is saying this. Seeing that it is true that the Messiah is David's descendant. Have you never thought about the fact that David calls him his Lord? You just feel the implication. Because Jesus had an attitude about it. Aren't you the professional scholars And so Jesus turns their focus to Psalm 110 by quoting the very first verse of it, and which points them to the reality that though the Messiah, He's David's Son, He is very human, yet He is much more than mere man. But He said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? If you have a, a real Bible... Or uh, you can one of those electronic ones. Turn for a moment to, to Psalm 110. It's a short psalm. There's only seven verses in it. And the entirety of it is clearly about Jesus. Clearly messianic. Start with verse 1. This is how David, who wrote it about a thousand years before Jesus is now in the temple referring to it, Begins, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, your English translation, because this is what they're going to do in English here, you should see the first word, Lord, it's in all caps. The second is not in all caps. All caps with the word Lord in your Old Testament means the Hebrew word behind that is the four letters of the very personal name of the God of Israel. Yahweh. 
When it doesn't have all caps, the second one, it is the word for just the Lord. Adonai. So in the Hebrew, the psalm says, Yahweh. That's the way He revealed Himself to Moses. I am. My name is Yahweh. God in Hebrew is Elohim. Yeah, I'm God. I'm Elohim. I'm Adonai. I rule over. I'm sovereign, yes. And my personal name is Yahweh. Yahweh, David says, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is a conversation between two persons of the Holy Trinity. There's only one God. One in essence. Three in subsistence or three in persons. Eternally is the nature of God. The Creator, the essence of God. And here, since we know it refers to Christ, the Father Yahweh speaks to David's Adonai. And we know and we're going to see this is a very messianic psalm. So Adonai, the way David's using it here, he's got to clearly, he's referring to my Lord, that Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. So really he's saying, Yahweh says to my Messiah, sit at my right hand till I subjugate all your enemies under your feet. And then the whole psalm goes on to unveil, to, to, to reveal the divine plan of subjecting all things underneath David's Lord. David's Messiah. That's the puzzle that Jesus presents. How can the Messiah be both David's physical descendant and also be David's Lord, Adonai. He calls Him Lord. So how is He His Son? The paradox cannot be resolved unless the Messiah is both human, David's descendant, and divine. David's Lord in the same person. Psalm 110 is a whole now. This picture that David gets by the Holy Spirit and writes a thousand years earlier. Sit at my right hand. Partic- that, that picture is particularly after Jesus' death and resurrection and He ascends to the throne. That's what it's referring to. Sit now at my right hand. Remember when Jesus was on trial, the Sanhedrin demanded, tell us, are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus spoke. And He grabbed Psalm 110 to answer it. But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of power of God. And then, 40 days after His resurrection, 
Jesus did ascend to the Father. Sat down at the right hand of God. And later, the Apostle Paul knows it, sees it. He has all the goods about this. And listen to Paul here in Ephesians 1, allude again to Psalm 1.10. He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand there it is, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And hear it again, hear it again. And He put all things under His feet as a footstool. And gave Him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is His body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. A few days after, Peter watched Jesus ascend. I mean, he's been hanging out with him for 40 days after his resurrection. And that comes to an end. And he ascends. And a few days later, Peter publicly to thousands in the temple described or explained Christ this way. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we here are all witnesses being therefore exalted, here's Psalm 110, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but David himself says, quote, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's a very significant psalm. So let's read the first four verses of that psalm. Get a flow, picture of who Jesus is. And I'm going to read it a little interpretively from what I've already taught you about the words. Yahweh says to my Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, your Messiah. Messiah, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change His mind. You, Messiah, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. See that verse 4? The Melchizedek passage? It's a prophecy that this Messiah will clearly replace the old covenant temporal priesthood with His eternal, unending priesthood. 
This was so clear to the New Testament writers, particularly the writer of the book of Hebrews. I can't quote all of his allusions to Psalm 110 just because of time. But, But in chapter 1, he says this, And to which of the angels has Yahweh ever said? What he means here, angels, boy, they're They are a superior, great type of being. Not in comparison to Jesus. Because to which of the angels has He ever said, sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Chapter 5 of Hebrews, He says, So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him, and it's Yahweh, the eternal God, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. So that's Psalm 2. And then He also says in another place, Psalm 110, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Four more times the Hebrew writer goes to Psalm 110 to show how clearly it's all about. Okay, so let's go back in the temple. Jesus poses the question to get at one of the greatest mysteries in existence. The Messiah must be a human being. The Son of David. And David himself calls Him Lord. David thus calls Him Lord. So how is that? How can it be true? And at the same time, he's also David's son. That's what he posed, particularly to the religious clergy, leaders, professionals, scribes. And they stood there with their long white robes and their tassels hanging down to their feet, and they were silent. Because it was a puzzle that they never thought of. In, let me just, just for a minute, nothing to do with, with the flow of the sermon. But what Jesus did there, it's a really good tactic to help people. Sometimes even with fellow Christians where we might have disagreement with each other or, or in evangelism with, a, with, with an unbelieving family member, people come up and say stuff and you realize that's so unbiblical and we argue with them. Instead of arguing with them, think if you got, and there are, many clear passages that contradict exactly what they said. Help them by turning to it. And say, Can you read that? Then help me. Maybe I'm wrong. Help me. That's what Jesus is doing. Explain that to me. And the power of it, I think it will blow your mind when they see it. And you ask them to explain something. That's what Jesus is doing here. How is this? They kept their mouth shut. Now, there's another mystery about Psalm 110. Beside, He's Lord and He's human. The God-man. And the other mystery is this. This one to be exalted to the right hand of God and have all His enemies subjugated under His feet. Just within a few days of Jesus saying this, He will be killed by His enemies. That's a mystery. 
Peter himself, in chapter 2 of Acts, said, this Jesus, whom Psalm 110 refers to, you crucified. So listen to verses 5 and 6 of the psalm. Psalm 110. About Jesus. The Lord or the Messiah is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs or leaders over the wide earth. Huh? A few days later, they kill this guy. That's a mystery. Because what we know very clearly, and we know that it was there in the Old Testament, is that Jesus has two comings. And as He stood in the temple, He knows His death is just a couple days away. And He came in order to give His life as a ransom for many. He came His first time through the womb of Mary in order to suffer and to die and to rise and to ascend and be seated at the right hand of God. But He will yet come again and smite the nations and rule with a rod of iron. As Psalm 110 says. That's a mystery. This Psalm 110 flew right over their heads. Just as Isaiah chapter 53 about the suffering servant that so explicitly describes Christ's crucifixion 700 years beforehand flew right over their heads. Until this very day, it still flies right over some very smart, good neighbors who are religiously Jewish. One of my mentors for 20 years in logic and thought and clarity, a religious Jew, Dennis Prager, you ask him, why don't you receive or believe that Jesus is that promised Messiah. The answer He will give you, and many religious, serious Jews will give you, is because He did not fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah. Like this part here in Psalm 110. Or many other, when all of His enemies will be totally, absolutely under His feet. In other words, they say He did not fulfill these prophecies of Messiah that Jesus will fulfill when He returns the second time. And then it will be too late to repent and to believe in Him. In other words, they miss what Jesus said after His resurrection to some fellow Jews on the road to Emmaus. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into His glory? That's the first aspect 
of genuine Christianity. A right understanding of the person of Christ. Who He really is. He's David's son. He's born of a woman. He is 100% like you and me, except for sin nature. But He pre-existed. He never came into being. He was God the second person of the Trinity who took to Himself our genuine humanity in order to be our substitutionary sacrifice absorbing the wrath of God against all who will be saved. And God raised Him from the dead. And 40 days later, He ascended to sit at the right hand of power on high until all His enemies will be subjugated. That's at the core of who this Jesus is. This is why Paul opens up the greatest letter ever written to the Romans this way. He hasn't been there yet. He wants to meet them when he gets there. He writes beforehand and introduces himself. I, Paul, an apostle, set apart for the Gospel, the good news of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son who was a who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who Jesus really is. Got to get that right. And you can get that right and not be a saved person. Because you need the second aspect. And that's having a right response to who He is. It is having a heart that says, like, like, like Jesus' little parable, really? Yes, that's true, I see it. And that is a treasure in a field. <laughs> Let me go sell all I got and get it. It is a heart it says, yes, I believe You. I trust You. I want to walk with You. This is mind-boggling. The greatest news I have ever heard. And so, you cling to Him. And that is called faith. It's not just to say a prayer or agreement in your head. That's called faith. And that saving faith that springs up in people bears fruit. It bears the fruit of, a, of obedience, not perfection. It bears fruit of an obedience from their joy in their Savior, David's Son, Jesus Christ. And that joy springs from basic gospel. It doesn't take long. You just pay attention for 30 minutes. You should be able to get it intellectually. The question is usually with our heart. It really messes our mind up. But it, it's just this basic gospel that when it gets it, it realizes 
about Him. Wow! He's the center of my world. That faith moves the core of one's heart away from their own self-exaltation. And so Jesus goes on to warn His disciples about that false self-exaltation. False religion. And He says basically, don't be like them. Verse 45, see it? And in the hearing of all the people, He said to His disciples, it's funny how Luke puts that. Luke wants to say, Jesus wanted to be heard by the scribes and by the Pharisees. But He's saying it to His disciples. So His hearers in the temple that day, they could sense Jesus' disgust in His voice. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast who devour widows' homes for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation clearly said these people, people that have been challenging Him, they love to be seen as spiritual giants. They love to be seen in their long flowing religious garb. They love for people to walk up to them on the street in the marketplace and say, Rabbi, they love to be patted on the back. They love the best seats in the synagogue. They love when they sit up front and turn their chairs towards the congregation so everyone can see their face during religious activity. False religion at its very core is not God's Word. It is utterly man-centered. It does not acknowledge deep down, I am an unworthy sinner. I am only worthy of eternal judgment. But Jesus has saved me. And as Paul banged throughout his letters to the church, there is no more room for boasting. Or you don't get it. This man-centered spirituality, according to this little text right here, it also loves to extract money from weak people. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, let me just give you a quote from one commentator unpacking. Okay, what's Jesus talking about about these scribes right here? Quote, They did this, devouring widows' houses and these long prayers, and for pretense, really for money. They did this by taking payment from widows for legal aid, even though such payments were prohibited cheating inexperienced widows of their inheritance. 
living off the hospitality of lonely women, mismanaging widows' property who had dedicated themselves to the service of the temple and accepting money from the naive elderly in exchange for special prayers. If you don't think that exists today, just turn on Christian TV. It is rampant in our day. And unbelief in Christ. Sin is one thing. Sin run amok in the guise of Christianity and Christian leadership is quite another. And that's why Jesus says there are levels of condemnation and they will receive, quote, the greater condemnation. He's saying, disciples, look at the scribes and run. Don't be like them. Instead, be something like what Paul said in Galatians 5.6. Neither circumcision, these outward signs of religiosity, nor uncircumcision means anything but faith. Working itself out in loving other people counts for everything. That's the essence of Christianity. Those two things. A right understanding with Christ and a heart that embraces what your mind accurately understands about Christ in the Gospel. But before I close, I just want to go back to the text here and just say, are you a believer? If you're a believer, if you're an unbeliever, you can hear him too and be changed. But believer, listen to the words of Jesus. Be encouraged. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, first, sit at my right hand. You know, God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. Now, God the Son doesn't have a divine body, but God the Son in His human nature has a human body. Here, it's not referring to right hand as opposed to left hand. God doesn't have a right hand as opposed to a left hand. This, this is imagery in the ancient world to refer to authority, favor, of the sovereign, of the king, of victory, meaning, sit at my right hand. This one has the right to rule and to reign. And so, don't say this though. Believe, okay, that's great. You're sitting at God's right hand. It's kind of like beyond me. Or, well, what does that have to do with my everyday life that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God? Two really crucial things it has to do with. The first is this, and we saw it in chapter 2 of Acts. Peter made it clear that because Jesus fulfilled Psalm 110, because Jesus died and rose and ascended and is seated at the right hand of God, that's the reason He poured out the Holy Spirit. Well, see, if you're a Christian right now, 
If you have come to Christ, faith has come alive. It is only because God the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you. And the only reason that could have happened is because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. It's the first reason. Second reason, I'm just going to let Paul say it to you. In Romans 8. And feel it. Y'all have been through stuff in your life already. And we don't know what lay ahead of us before we go to be with Him and before the resurrection. So hear the words, Christian, from the Apostle Paul. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You a believer? Then that's you. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Listen to Paul's argument. Christ Jesus is the One who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding. So, who should separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no one. No one. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. But notice one other thing Psalm 110 verse 1 says. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. All demonic powers. All human beings who oppose Christ shall be defeated. The psalm says, Jesus, I am putting all your enemies under your feet by virtue of your incarnation. Life, death, resurrection, and ascension to my right hand. That's the text. What do we do with that? Turn on the news. Wars. People right now in this world are being tortured. Child molestation is going on. Bombs go off in malls and kill innocent people. Sexual immorality is rampant. Really? This text? Jesus? Your enemies are under your feet, being squashed, subjugated? You're defeating your enemies. The answer to that is yes, He is. He's even doing it right now. And that's what this text says. Whenever the Gospel in this present evil world, whenever the Gospel is faithfully preached and the Holy Spirit in power opens hearts to it, 
Jesus wins. He is subjugated. His authority, His kingdom has invaded a life for eternity. Whenever a sinner comes alive to Jesus Christ, their objective legal guilt before God is put under Jesus' feet. It's defeated on their behalf forever. Every time one of us believers moves again from despair to hope in Christ, in His sanctifying work, Jesus conquers that despair In war, He defeated despair and put it under His feet. If you have been walking with Christ as a born-again person for four months, or four years, or forty years, if you are hearing this Gospel right now in this room and loving it, and in a few minutes we will again be singing it, then you are participating in this very reality. The progressive subjugating of the enemies of Jesus. Now, almost done. Having said that, and that's what's going on, and then Paul affirms this is going on throughout 1 Corinthians 15, and then he says this beginning in verse 24, about the resurrection. He's going to come back. Then comes the end. When He, Christ, the Messiah, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For, now here's Psalm 110 again, for He, Christ, must reign, even right now, until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. Jesus is the Son of David. But oh, He is so much more. And that's what Jesus was saying in the temple that day to the scribes. You know Psalm 110 verse 1. It's about Me. It's referring to Me, the Messiah, the divine human Savior. And so Paul concludes 1 Corinthians 15, knowing we still live in a veil of tears, that he still allows evil to not be totally subjugated, even though in the midst of this present evil world, he is reigning. Are you alive to Christ? It is a mind-shattering miracle that you responded to the Gospel, and it is because of Christ present rule and sending of the Holy Spirit. And this will go on, not forever but for a time. But until then, Paul ends the great chapter this way. Be steadfast. 
immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labors are not in vain. I'm going to pray in a moment and then we will pass out the bread and the cup. If you're a baptized believer, feel free to partake. Father, as we meditate upon this, as You have given to us physical remembrance through bread and and the cup, the fruit of the vine, the body and the blood of Your Son, Jesus, oh, would You continue by the special presence of Your Holy Spirit in this communion service to work Psalm 110 into the soul minds, the affections of us, your people, to the glory of Jesus, our great King and our great Priest, who this moment